Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, there's a growing feeling amongst Americans that we're suffering a crisis of leadership, not only in our government, but our families and our businesses. People today just seem to have less independence or agency and are less autonomous and more directed by others. What's behind this lackluster leadership and what's the solution? Well, my guest today argues the problem has to do with the way we're bringing up what he calls excellent sheep. And the solution is equal doses of deep solitude and deep friendship. His name is William Derezowitz, and he's the author of several books and speeches, including a Jane Austen Education, Excellent Sheep, and Solitude and Leadership. And today on the show, William and I discuss what most so-called leaders get wrong about leadership and why learning to be alone with your thoughts helps forge better leaders. We discuss the history of friendship and why friends are so hard to make out as adult and what you can do to form deeper relationships. And then William and I also talk about how young people can stop being excellent sheep and jumping through hoop after hoop that's put in front of them in order to start living on their own terms. We cap our conversation with an exploration of why men should give Jane Austen a chance and the life lessons we can get from her novels. This is an eclectic but wisdom-filled podcast. You're definitely going to hear something you'll end up mentally chewing on for days to come. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash sheep. William Derezowitz, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Uh, so I'm a big fan of your work. You've written about things or lectured about things that I'm a, that really interest me. Leadership, friendship, solitude. You have a book about Jane Austen. We wrote a post a while back ago about why every man should read Jane Austen, and your book provided some useful guidance here. Um, let's start off talking about leadership. Um, you gave a lecture at West Point, um, and you've written in your book, Excellent Sheep, that while top, today's top universities and organizations say they're here to create leaders, uh, they're actually not doing so. What are we getting wrong about leadership today at universities and in organizations across the country? Well, let me answer that in a couple of ways, um, because I think we're getting two things wrong. First of all, our understanding of leadership is desperately wrong, but also more broadly, something that I think is implicit in your question, quite frankly, which is that we focus on the concept too much altogether. I think we need to ask ourselves, A, what does leadership really mean? And B, why is it so important to us all of a sudden? Or there may be other things that we're missing. So in terms of universities especially, uh, I think at this point, leadership, the way they use it, just means being successful. I think it's become a euphemism for success. And when 
schools say that we produce leaders, what they're telling students and parents is we are going to make sure that you're successful. We make, we're going to make sure that you make a lot of money and have high status. Um, broadly speaking, you're going to get to the top. You're going to, you're going to uh, be able to be a member of the elite. So that means that leadership is being used in a way that's essentially without content, right? It's simply about the position that you occupy. It has no reference first of all, to anyone else, right? It's not about leading other people. It's not about the good of other people. And that becomes really clear when you look back on the way the word leadership was used at, you know, Ivy League institutions, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, back in the day, back when they were in all kinds of bad ways, really segregated. You know, they were finishing schools for white male Protestant uh, aristocrats, basically, the WASP aristocracy. The difference, you know, for all that was so wrong with with the Ivies then, the difference is that when they talked about leadership, it actually meant something. It meant you guys were born into privilege. You were born into the leadership of the country. And that isn't about what you're going to get from it. It's not about wealth, status, power, fame. It's about what you need to give. It's about what you need to give to the society that you are being put in charge of. You need to make sure that you hand that society and its institutions on in better shape than you found it. And that means not thinking about yourself first, but rather thinking about other people first. It means duty. It means sacrifice. It means responsibility. Um, all these things that, you know, they would try to inculcate on the football field back when football was about something other than television contracts. Um, all that's been lost. So that's my first problem with it, is that we understand leadership in a really hollowed out, self-centered way. And my second problem is just mainly because of the way we understand it now, I think we put too much emphasis on it, especially in, uh, in colleges. There are a lot of other things to get done in college that are more important than becoming a success, a leader so-called. And those other things I think are increasingly being sacrificed, starting with actually getting a rigorous education that teaches you to be a critical thinker. And I don't mean a critical thinker in the way people do now, like, you know, you learn to be a good lawyer. I mean someone who can really examine their own beliefs and the beliefs of the society around them and uh, figure out whether they, whether they think they're good beliefs and whether they need to be changed. I don't think schools should think of themselves as being in the business of producing leaders. I think they should be in the business of producing, well, what's the right word? Thinkers? I think yeah, yes, that is the right word. <laughs> yes, that's the right word. Yeah, thinkers. You know, they, all, there's an alternative to being a leader or a follower, right? I mean, I think when we talk about leaders, there's this, you know, either you're a leader or a follower. No, actually, you can just be a thinker. You can be a citizen. You can be a dissenter. You can tr be someone who tries to stand outside of that whole dynamic of the people on the top and the people on the bottom. Okay, that's this is great. There's a lot to unpack there. Let's get back to that first point you made about how our concept of leadership has been hollowed out. Because as you're describing how leadership was portrayed, you know, a century ago, I was thinking of guys like Teddy Roosevelt, right? You know, yeah. from an aristocratic family, and he had this like sense of duty that he owed something to the country. So, I mean, what changed? What changed in our culture where that idea of leadership became hollowed out? 
Right. Well, I think a lot changed and uh, probably too much to even talk about it, including the discrediting of ideas like authority, the discrediting of ideas. That, I mean, I think this is maybe particularly relevant for your podcast. I think many of the values that we associate with adulthood, like sacrifice and responsibility and authority, have been discredited. You know, we sort of don't want to become adults. That's a bad thing to become. But, you know, more specifically with the colleges, um, you know, who goes to college and what they what they do there and how they're chosen. So we basically we've shifted from this, you know, very narrow, very exclusionary aristocracy where people who were born into it were, you know, were pretty much automatically got to go to an Ivy League college and were um, inculcated with this ethic of sacrifice. It doesn't mean they all lived up to it, but they were inculcated with this ethic. And then about 50 years ago, I mean, there's a very specific historical change. It needed to happen. The schools opened themselves up. They started to you know, admit women, affirmative action, remove the quotas on Jews, and and shifted the whole emphasis of their uh, admissions process to what we call meritocracy, right? SAT scores, grades, AP test scores. Um, there was, you know, a lot of that needed to happen. It was good that it happened, but it turned the whole business into a much more uh, individualistic, self-seeking, uh, what can I get for myself kind of endeavor. And it happened, I think, not coincidentally, at the same time that society in general was moving from a kind of, you know, New Deal, great society sort of ethos of of uh, social solidarity and social good to a sort of more Reagan-esque, neoliberal, every man for himself. And, and, and despite the fact that the colleges tend to be hotbeds of liberalism and to see themselves as liberal institutions, that part of it, you know, admitting students in a meritocratic way and training them to be careerist professionals, which is basically what they do, but they call it leadership, right? That is not a very liberal thing at all. Right, right. And I guess also you talk about in your, your book that, it's, you know, a consumerist mindset has also creeped in, right, in, in our universities sure, yeah. and that's kind of taken over in, in leadership. Like what's in it for me? Well, uh, absolutely. I, I mean, it's it's a consumerist mindset from the student's point of view, but also from the university's point of view. Uh, they treat their students as consumers who to whom they have to provide certain things, you know, all kinds of things, including this notion that we're going to make you leaders and that what that's code for uh, instead of an educational institution, which is about demanding things. And treating their students as students. A student is someone from whom things are expected, not someone who is entitled to certain things. So that's that's the consumerist mindset in academia now. Yeah. So I mean, these uh, these students who are graduating from these elite schools. I mean, they are becoming CEOs and leaders in government. I mean, if these folks really aren't leaders, what are they? Yeah. Right. Well, they're bureaucrats, uh, for one thing. Uh, I mean, look, you, you, I think, I think the question you ask contains a very important answer, which is that the leadership class we have, which I think has been very conspicuously failing, uh, at least since the Iraq war, if not earlier, is transparently a product of the schools that train our so-called leaders and what they train them to be are self, self-dealing, self-serving, self-enclosed, uh, and quite frankly, very, very timid, very unimaginative. Uh, and we've seen, you know, across the board, whether it's the banks or government or the military, uh, the media, I mean, this huge sort of uh, herd of people who call them le- themselves leaders, but in fact 
are all the things that I just said. They're, they're, they're leaders only by virtue of the fact that they occupy certain positions. They don't display traits of leadership for the most part. Yeah, they're like managers or technocrats. Um, they're managers and technocrats, but uh, I think, and that's bad enough, but I think of a certain type, um, of a type that's, that's, listen, the best example for me, he's actually British, but it's not really that different there. I mentioned him in the book. Uh, Tony Hayward, who everybody remembered 10 years ago, he was the CEO of BP during the Gulf oil spill. So his company was perpetrating the greatest environmental disaster in history. And he, 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 he held this news conference where he said, you know, I'm suffering too. I want my life back. Like, I want my life back. That's, that was what he was focused on because for him being CEO of BP was having a great lifestyle and any sense of responsibility was just absent from that equation. Right. So, you know, at least if they were good managers, it wouldn't be so bad. But they're managers who were thinking about themselves first, you know, and we could I mean, we could go down the whole list. So much of what came out after Wall Street collapsed was the way banks were defrauding their own clients, the way they were the way they had, you know, um, basically bought the political system to create regulations that benefited them, but harmed society at large, the way they were. If not defrauding, then at least endangering all the people who lost mortgages, all the people who should never have had mortgages in the first place, right? I mean, this is the point. There's no sense of stewardship anymore. There's no sense of larger responsibility. There's no sense of corporate citizenship. Right. And you talk, I like how you talk about how Heart of Darkness uh, provides some insight into our current leadership crisis. You know, we often think of Heart of Darkness is this uh, book about colonialism and race and things like which it is. But you are you you argue that it's actually a great insight into bureaucracies you know, and how they can just make us yeah. t- dumb and terrible. Yeah, right. I mean, we tend to you know we think about Kurtz, that sort of mysterious, charismatic kind of monster who's sitting there at the middle of the spider web and, you know, in Apocalypse Now, which is adopted from Heart of Darkness, that's the Marlon Brando character. But most of what the the protagonist narrator Marlowe encounters along the way, we forget about that because it's less exciting and it's actually designed to be less exciting. It's the bureaucracy of this company. It's actually, he spells it with a capital C. It was like the the, the Belgian, you know, company that ran the Congo for the Belgian government, right? And it, it, it's and we see the um, this other kind of evil. He calls them flabby devils in the novel. They're, it's not the red-eyed devil of Kurtz who has this kind of charisma and life force. It's this kind of flabby devil of bureaucracy that actually is much more powerful than Kurtz, that destroys Kurtz. And, that, and it's all about keeping the system going for your own benefit without having any convictions behind it at all. In fact, it's not even an awareness that there could be convictions, right? So there's nothing, there's no ideal, there's no principle that you would make a choice uh, to uphold, right? So there's, it's just your own career advancement. That's how, I mean, this is so often the type that bureaucracies produce. And I mean, I've met people like this. I think anyone who's worked in any kind of bureaucratic environment has met people like this. They're the people who tend to rise in corporations because they never stick their neck out. They know how to please their superiors. They never make a move that's going to endanger their career. Yeah, this is this. And, and we call these people leaders because they get to the top. Yeah, sounds sort of like a, a Nietzschean last man. Yeah. 
I blink. It is. Yes, it is a Nietzsche of us, right. man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay, so instead of focusing, you just said that we, we shouldn't just focus on leadership. We, we, in fact, we probably focus too much on it. Instead, we should focus on uh, be, developing thinkers or becoming thinkers because thinkers often end up being good leaders. Um, and I love how you argue that solitude is vital for developing this thinking ability. Um, yeah. So what do you mean by solitude? Does it mean becoming a hermit, you know, in a cabin, every now and then, or is it something else? You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I this was the, my talk at West Point uh, in 2009, uh, and the talk was called Solitude and Leadership. The truth is I did not set out to write a talk about leadership or to be some kind of expert on leadership, although this talk is now taught in a lot of business schools and, and it's taught in the military. Um, I had written about solitude, and I was asked by some people at West Point to talk to the plebes the first years about solitude. And I wanted to try to make a connection to them in a way that they would care about it, because I don't really think that that's a very urgent uh, concern for them. I realized that leadership, and by the way, at West Point, it really does mean what it used to mean. It really is all about sacrifice and duty. So leadership is a really important word there. So I wrote a talk called Solitude and Leadership, and I, it forced me to think about the connection between these two things. So if, if we agree, as I've already said, that being a leader isn't about rising to the top per se, it's about really being able to oppose the system that you're part of when necessary, right? To take a courageous stand, to find a new direction, to risk your career by doing something that may be risky. Um, how are you gonna do that? How are you going to become someone who can think for themselves is really what we're talking about. Think for themselves and act for themselves. Uh, and my answer, I don't think it's the entire answer, but my answer is solitude. Uh, it doesn't have to mean full-time solitude. It doesn't have to mean being a hermit. Um, but I think it does mean having some degree of solitude in your life. And that can mean a lot of different things, but fundamentally it means the ability to be alone with your thoughts. Um, you know, you can be solitary in a room with other people if you're sitting, if it's a library and you're sitting reading a book or a cafe and you're sitting reading a book. Uh, and you can also be alone in a room and not be solitary at all, like because you're connected to your devices and you're toggling between five different social media. I mean, I think that's the great threat to solitude now. So, yeah, that's my that's my understanding of the connection between uh, leadership and thinking and thinking and solitude. Right. So I imagine our, our the social media culture where you live out your life and live out your thoughts and publicly that that's the antithesis of solitude. Like you probably want to do less of that. Yeah. Listen, I mean, I, I, I don't want to come across as this Luddite who thinks that everything that happens on a computer is bad. I don't. And I certainly use social media myself, although I try to do it as sparingly as possible, but I'm not the first person to suggest that there are some real losses that come with our total immersion in social media. And I think actually what I'm saying about this is similar to what some psychologists, I think Sherry Turkle, who's this MIT, I think she's a psychologist. She's been, she's a social scientist. She's been writing about this a lot. Like what does social media do to our, to our sense of self and what it seems to do, the more you're on it, the more it, um, you kind of export your sense of self to the people in your social network. So who you are, is all about how you reflect, how social media reflect is reflects yourself back to you, and and you kind of, you know, you're kind of waiting to be filled by other people's opinions of yourself, or 
you know, which are which are also not even really in response to yourself. They're in response to the image you create of yourself on social media. I think we all understand. We all do. it. We all understand what it's like to craft a persona on social media. So you put this persona out there for the approval of the group. Um, where does that leave you? Right. Right. Who's the real you? Yeah, this reminds me a lot of uh, the Lonely Crowd, that book that was written in the fifties. Yeah, sure. Like other, the other sure. directed people, like other directed, absolutely. Right. Yeah, we, we ourselves are correct are created by other people. We look, we kind of put out feelers to others to figure out what we are. Um, yes, and it's important to remember that it's not like there's this real self that's being concealed by these persona. The real self is something that needs to be built, that needs to be developed. We're not just born with one, and this is also why it's an especial concern for adolescents, you know, who are living their life. You know, that, that time of life is the time that you're really supposed to build the foundation of a self. Uh, and if you're and if it's all about like what your friends think of you, that's going to be a real problem because that self is it's not it's not that it's going to be concealed. It's just not going to be there in the first place. Yeah. All right. So spend less time on social media. Um, you also talk about in that lecture at West Point, like reading books is another you know, act of solitude to take part in. Yeah. Again, I mean, I know that makes me sound like, like an old fart probably. Um, and I don't want to fetishize books in particular. I also don't think they have to be on paper. I mean, they can be on a screen. Um, I, but listen, first of all, reading in general is an inward experience. If you're actually reading, you're not, you know, you're, you're in more, you're in intimate contact with one other person, the person who wrote whatever it is you're reading. And you're not your attention isn't being scattered to a bunch to a million different things, um, unless you're kind of reading the way people read online, where you are just jumping around, you know, minute by minute. So reading in general, and that could mean, you know, it could mean an, an essay, it could mean a story. The thing about books, the thing about longer sort of reading encounters, is just how immersive and extensive they are. So it's not just a few minutes, but it's a real long really communion with with one other person who's put themselves very intensely in this act of writing. I mean, I think anyone who gets any pleasure out of reading understands that it's a it's a unique experience. It's a unique it's a unique kind of uh, inner communion that uh, you somehow make contact with yourself by making contact with someone else. And it happens in a way that, that it, it, it's, it's almost, uh, it's almost um, uh, impossible to do in any other way. Right. And that's why I say, you know, reading books um, can be not for everybody, but can be. And if you have a taste for it, you know, you should really try it hard, but try to make room in your life because it's so deeply rewarding. Right. And I guess you also need to fight the urges, you know, when you're done reading that book to get online and like immediately share your opinion on it. <laughs> right. Your hot take. You know, yeah. I mean, to be honest, it doesn't, if you've actually finished a book, that part wouldn't even bother me that much. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I think it's becoming rare and rare for people to actually finish books and, and specifically, you know, really challenging books that, that, that demand a lot of you mentally, not just, you know, like a business book. Um, if you want to go and share your take, especially if it's a thoughtful one and it requires a certain, like some serious writing, then that's fine. All right. Um, so you also argue in that lecture you gave at West Point um, about the importance of close friendships uh, in developing leader thinkers. 
what is it about a close friendship that can help people become better thinkers, better leaders? Right. So this is really just the same the same thought as the thought about reading, right? They're different, that there are different ways, I think, to have this kind of productive solitude. So again, let me say that I'm defining solitude not as being physically alone, but as being alone with your thoughts. So first of all, you're, you know, you're socially alone. You're not in social media contact, but you are actually with your thoughts, right? You are sort of in your head in a good way uh, that allows you to kind of figure out who you are, what's important to you, what you think you ought to be doing tomorrow or for the rest of your life. I think reading does that. I think silent contemplation, contemplation is a fancy word, but just like thinking your thoughts, maybe while you're doing some kind of work, um, uh, you know, you're building a table, but you're thinking your thoughts. Um, and friendship. I think those kind of, the, the kind of uh, intimate friendships that enable you to have long, undirected conversations. Um, that I think social media and the pace of our life in general are making harder and harder. But what they do, I mean, first of all, they're just great to have anyway. I mean, I think one of the things that makes people happy is having deep connections with other people. So I don't think they need to be justified in any other term. But one of the things they do is to help you, you know, kind of discover and articulate what's going on inside you by expressing it to someone else. I mean, I think one of the things that a, that a true friend does is to help you feel comfortable enough to kind of be yourself in precisely the way that social life, whether it's social media or social life as it existed before social media, makes it often so hard to do because you feel like you need to wear that mask. You need to project that persona. And with a real friendship or a real you know, partnership, romantic partnership, um, you can drop the mask. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money in things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Right. I know I know that's true in my own experience. Um, I, I, I definitely uh, kind of hold back when I'm interacting in social media, but when I'm in that one-on-one with someone I trust, it allows me to play with ideas and not be afraid of repercussions, right? Someone's seen what I tweeted and like saying, oh my gosh, look what he, he thinks. Like, well, no, I'm just, I'm experimenting with this idea. Let me figure it out. Right, right. That's a great point. And I think, you know, one of the sad things about social media is that it's evolved in this direction of such, you know, sort of immediate judgment and censure and hostility that, you know, I, I can understand that people are sort of more and more, I mean, never mind even sharing like a personal thing, just like putting anything out there. You kind of feel like you need to have your armor up. So, yeah. So, but, but listen, I mean, those kinds of intimate friendships that I think re- rely, you know, require long, stretches of uninterrupted time, just like real reading does, just like real solitude does harder and harder. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's dig into this idea of friendship because you also have an ebook, a short little ebook called the death of friendship. Um, and you argue that us moderns really don't know what friendship means anymore. At least we don't, we don't understand, you know, what friendship means the way our ancestors might've understood it. Um, 
So how has the notion of friendship changed from, you know, say the days of ancient Greece until now? Right. Well, this is, I mean, this is a little more complicated. I, I don't, I don't want to, it wasn't my intention in that uh, essay to, to idealize sort of ancient friendship per se. I actually think that in many ways, the modern age, if we mean the last couple of hundred years, have been a golden age of friendship. But briefly, back in the day, this is very counterintuitive. It surprised me when I discovered it. Uh, friendship was rare. Um, because societies were more highly structured and you owed allegiance and blah, 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 the, the notion of, of one true friend who is more important to you than the allegiances that you were supposed to have was actually a big deal. And, you know, there are Greek myths about it and, you know, like Achilles and Patroclus or Damon and Pythias. And, um, you know, you had, you had people in your world who we might today call friends, but friendship was was understood to be this really special thing and that really that persisted pretty much up until modernity i mean if you know hamlet there's hamlet and horatio horatio is kind of this classical friend in the sense of the you know the classical world as opposed to rosencrantz and gildenstern who are like hamlet's drinking buddies but totally stab him in the back because they're just maneuvering for their own benefit within the world with the danish court so that's like that's the pre-modern friendship, right? The rare friendship that gets celebrated if you can manage to have it at all. The thing that happens in modernity is that all those traditional structures, you know, feudal hierarchies and even family structures start to break down. And all of a sudden friendship becomes, it, it changes in two ways. You, you have lots and lots and lots of friends because that's the world you live in. We're just this world of atomized adults, right? Who are sort of broken apart from their family. You haven't gotten married yet and you travel in this world of friends. But by the same token, those friendships are rarely as intense as the kind of singular classical friendships. I think there have been times in modernity where friendship has actually been really highly developed. And we can look at all kinds of examples in among writers or artists or, or, or you know, or they're in fiction. Uh, I, I think I grew up in a world like that. You know, friendship, I had some really intense friendships when I was young, and, I, and I'm sure that young people still do. What I'm saying is that not in modernity as a whole, but in the age of social media, that might be getting harder and harder for all the reasons we've already said, because you don't have time, because you're afraid to be intimate, um, because I think uh, people are so focused on just kind of building their career. I mean... People talk about this as, at, in, among college students. College students have been interviewed about this. They, they don't have time for friendships. They don't have time for, you know, passionate romantic involvements. Everything is conducted in a spirit of real sort of uh, pragmatism. Right. So that's, that's what I'm concerned about. Yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, that line in Fight Club uh, when uh, the protagonist is with Tyler Durden. And he says, you know, you're my single serving friend. Uh, on the airplane, right? <laughs> right? I feel like that's how right. what Facebook does. Like, right. the social right. media sort of encourages like sort of this utilitarian view of people. It's like it allows you to easily find people who are just like you, have the same interests as you. Um, but that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, I mean, I know that we can use social media to help maintain friendships that are formed in a more genuine way. But I mean, friendships that exist only on social media. I mean, what what do they consist of? <laughs> really, not very much. And I think, you know, the fact that uh, Facebook uses the word friends is is telling. Uh, I think 
we want to believe that we have friends, that these people are our friends, but they're not really our friends. Uh, I mean, LinkedIn is more upfront about it. They're contacts. Uh, but of course, LinkedIn is, is uh, openly a business site. It's about networking. But Facebook provide, you know, it offers us networking in the guise of friendship. And I think it ultimately can erode our idea of what friendship is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, like my closest friends that I've had in my life, they've, I don't, I don't, if it were for the, like, they're, they're my friends. Cause like I, they were like, they were the ones that were the, nearest by, like I was constrained geographically. And I think if like, if I was honest, like if it was trying to meet this person online, I probably would never have interacted with them online because they're just completely different from me. Mm. But for some reason, because they were there physically, they're the only ones there. I was able to develop this awesome, intense relationship with them where I was able to open up to them. I think that's kind of, it's kind of weird. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Uh, these sort of affinity group sortings that happen in social media really actually don't necessarily reflect who we're, who we could be close to. But I would also say something else about what you're saying, that these friendships that you built were, uh, first of all, physical proximity. So it's not just words on a screen, or maybe images on a screen, but that, I mean, actual physical presence is very powerful. This, by the way, is one of the things that's wrong with online education, physical presence. But I imagine that these people you're talking about are people you had experiences with. You did things with them. And I mean, experience is, I mean, it's the ultimate, that, that's what really what bonds people together is when they have experiences. It's not about exchanging words necessarily or information or, you know, preferences. These are the songs that I like. It's about having common experiences. And, you know, to the extent that our uh, social life is mediated, uh, by the screen, we're not having those common experiences because they can only really happen in person. Yeah. So Bill, do you have any advice? I mean, for guys who are listening, like, man, I, I really want some friends, but I'm busy. <laughs> you know, everyone else is busy. Uh, I mean, like having friends in adulthood, I found is like one of the hardest things to do. I mean, you're, you're kind of further along than I am uh, right. in life. Any advice on making good friends while an adult? Well, I'll tell you, uh, this, is, this is kind of the opposite of advice. The truth is that it does get harder and harder as you get older for a lot of reasons. I mean, busyness is only part of it. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, this is I've been aware. I'm 52 and I've started I noticed this start, you know, probably for the last 20 years. And the people are, I mean, everybody my age says this. It, um, it, it gets harder. And, and, um, I think you're, you know, your sort of personality is less kind of malleable. And I mean, so much of those friendships that when you're young are actually cause you're being formed together and now you're already formed. But I would say that with friendship, it's the same as with solitude to the extent that it's possible. It's about making hard choices and, and asking yourself what your priorities are and then really Doing the hard work, and I know from my own experience, it's really hard to change your habits, to change your patterns, to say to yourself, I wish I had more time for X, and now I'm really going to try to make time, and that's going to involve spending less time with Y. And that Y could mean things that are hard to give up, including maybe some career advancement possibilities. But I think probably the way things are today, a lot of that junk time is being taken up by media, by social media. And if you can break that addiction, or at least manage that addiction better, I, again, I found in my own life, it frees up 
not only time, it kind of frees up psychic energy. I personally find that stuff so draining. And when I'm able to shut it out, um, I just have, I have more of myself for everything, whether that's solitude or friendship. Now, of course, with friendship, you got to find someone else who feels the same way or who's willing to, you know, prioritize that kind of thing. And that, and that can be difficult, but that's probably the kind of person you want to be friends with anyway. Right. Um, so we've got a lot of young listeners, right? Men who are in college or just out of college. And I, I love excellent sheep. And if you're in college, read this book. If you have kids in college, get the book. It's fantastic. Um, you argue that today's generation consists of excellent hoop jumpers, right? Like they're super accomplished, um, but they're accomplished only when there's a set program in place for them to follow. Um, and I've no, I've noticed that in my own life, right? Like I was always as a college student, like, Hey, what's the next ring I got to jump through? What's the next thing I got to do? Okay. Graduated college, uh, LSAT time now LSAT. Okay. I need to get a law review. You know, I just had these hoops. I was always trying to jump through. Um, and it's exhausting. And I don't think uh, there's a certain point where you're like, boy, why, why am I doing this again? And for listeners who are in college, how, why do you think they, what's your case for them getting off the hoop jumping track and how should they do that? Right. So let me say, first of all, again, to try as much as possible to not sound like an old fart. Um, this is not just kids today. The system that we're talking, we were talking about it before. It's this meritocratic SAT school, you know, GPA uh, achievement system that really started in the sixties. And the only thing that's, so I went through too in the, you know, seventies, eighties, um, the only difference is that it keeps accelerating all the time. It's like it's an arms race, right? It used to be that, you know, when I was in high school, the kids who got into Ivy League schools took like three AP courses in high school. And now it might be a dozen. Right. And it's just so the competition ratchets up the numbers and the numbers ratchet up the pressure. And before you know it, you have no time for anything but hoop jumping, including friendship, ro ro romantic involvements, sleep, play, downtime, nothing. Right. So here's what I would say, because there are rewards for hoop jumping. You get to be you get to be a leader, right? A quote unquote leader. You get to make it to the top. You get to be one of the jerks who are ruining the country. Um, I think that there are much more valuable things that you can do with your life. But the only argument I would make to people is ask yourself whether this is working for you. Ask yourself whether you're happy, whether it's whether you're feeling nurtured. And whether you want to spend the rest of, and the rest of your life doing this. I mean, I, under, I can understand if you have a legitimate goal, you know, I want to become a lawyer because I believe in environmental protection. And I want to be that, you know, a lawyer who, you know, who defends the environment. And in order to do that, I need to have good grades and I need to have good. That's all fine. You know, if you're doing if you're working hard for the sake of a goal that's meaningful to you, that's fine. But if like so many people, including me when I was in college, you're just doing it because that's what you're supposed to do. You're trying to get to the top, but it doesn't even matter to you what it's the top of. It just has to be the top because that's the only way you can have any kind of self-esteem. Then you're probably miserable. And there are all kinds of statistics and books by adolescent psychologists that talk about just how miserable high achieving students are these days. So that's my that, that's my argument to people. It's not any kind of grand philosophical argument about, you know, what human life should be about, although we could talk about that, too. It's just, are you happy? 
And if you're not, you need to find the strength, you need to find the courage to defy all of the forces and voices and incentives that are that have turned you into a hoop jumper. It may involve defying your parents. It may involve defying your peers and saying, you know what, I'm going to major in anthropology because I love it and I'm fascinated by it. And you guys can major in economics and go to Wall Street after you graduate. You know, good luck to you. But this is not working for me. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And talking about this, you know, going in with an ideal, uh, once you get in the system, it's hard to hold on to those ideals. I know I experienced that. I was like, I'm going to be an environmental lawyer when I, as my goal was in law school. Now I, I do this full time, but I remember how easy it was to be like, wow, you know, I want to work at that nice law firm <laughs> downtown that pays six and I want to be on law. I want to do these things. Um, so, I mean, how do you hold true to that ideal you have without, while you're still in the system and not let the system corrupt your ideals? Well, listen, I mean, first of all, it's hard. It's definitely hard. And, and we do, it doesn't do any good to pretend that it's not hard. But, you know, this is the thing, right, is and again, there have been studies of this. The people who work on Wall Street are unbelievably miserable. I mean, as measured by, you know, alcoholism, suicide, depression, whatever, life expectancy, uh, lawyers also miserable. Um, so the rewards look really great. But if you actually just investigate whether the people are happy. They're not happy. So again, what I would say is if you if you do have ideals, if you do have things that you believe in, work that you believe in, and you're managing to do it to some extent, um, ask yourself how that's going, right? And 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 I think what you'll find is that it's incredibly rewarding, right? The intrinsic rewards of pursuing some of of uh, studying something that's interesting to you, doing work that's meaningful to you. Um, are, are, I think what's going to help you the most resist the lure of all those false rewards, the shiny trinkets, because, you know, it's just, I mean, there's, this is what like, the people who've studied happiness will say that there are two things that really make people happy. One we mentioned before, which is feeling connected to other people. And the other one is purposeful work. And for my own life, cause I've also had the opportunity to pursue rewards that I, that I decided not to pursue. Um, and, and I was able to do that because I was just so into the other thing that it just seemed like that. That's what got me across the hump. It's like, why would I stop doing this thing that, that feels so great? Right. Does that, does that make yeah, sense? that makes perfect sense. And I love your answer. Cause I think it, it segues nicely to my next question. Cause there's a gal from the 18th century in England who wrote a lot about, you know, figuring out what, really makes you happy in life. Mm -hmm. uh, and her name is Jane Austen. Yes, uh, you, wrote a, yes. you wrote a book called The Jane Austen Education. Um, you're, you're a man, obviously, yes. we've been talking, but you've written, a, you've written how you learned a lot from Jane Austen, who we yeah. often think of as a sort of chiclet, right? Um, right. But why do you think a man should give Jane Austen a, a chance? What, what can she teach us about living a good life? Yeah, that's a great question. I think she can teach us a lot and we, I want to talk about that. But I think the first thing, at least for me, right, the, the big, cause I was just as resistant to her as any other guy. I thought she was chicklehead. I thought, you know, it's going to be really boring. And I, I read one of her novels in a grad class that I took for, cause of everything else that was on the syllabus. And so the first thing I think to learn is that you can learn something from a female writer who writes about female characters. Like this was a huge breakthrough for me that 
I mean, I'd always been drawn naturally to novels that had male protagonists um, who I could identify with. And just making that breakthrough of being able to identify with a female protagonist, despite the fact that she's female, because listen, I mean, what Jane Austen is writing about uh, in, in these books that are all about young women finding husbands, she's writing about things that we all go through. She's writing about um, growing up. She's writing about what love really means. She's writing about um, how being a good person is more important than being a fun person, which is kind of a hard lesson to accept. So, so that's what I, I mean. So first of all, just, just to be open to that possibility, um, I think is, you know, I think is really important, but, but I mean, there are other things. I mean, I don't want to, um, I don't want to turn masculinity into a stereotype, but certainly let's just say for myself, I was one of these young men who was very certain of himself. I did a lot of mansplaining. Um, uh, I was very arrogant. Um, and so the first novel of hers that I read, it's not the first one she wrote was, was Emma, which is about a character. Even Emma is a young woman, but actually she's a lot like that. And, and there are critics who've said that Emma in many ways is like, a, is like a man. Um, in terms of her, she's, she's independently wealthy. She has freedom of action. She's very, uh, respected in her community. She does what she wants. Uh, and she's exactly like that kind of person who thinks she knows everything better, thinks she knows what's better for the people around her than they do. And she makes a fool of herself. And, and she learns to, she learns her own limitations and she also learns not to have contempt for the people that she's looked down upon because they're beneath her socially. So that, I mean, that was my first lesson from her. And I, and, and, and I suddenly started to actually pay attention to the people around me and actually listen to what they were saying. And that's also probably when I started to become a good friend because I was able to actually take in what people were saying and have empathy for what they were going through instead of just thinking about myself all the time. Yeah. I so we can start with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, if, if there's a novel that you recommend that guys start off with, is it, which one would it be? Would it be Emma? Well, well, I mean, Emma's a great novel. Um, in some ways, it can be more challenging. You know, <clears throat> one of the criticisms of Austen in her own day, as well as ours, for the people who don't like her, is that nothing happens in her books because they're just about people sitting around, like you know, having tea parties. Um, it's not true because a lot happens socially, but it can be a challenge. And in Emma, she almost sort of, it's almost like a dare. It's almost like she's saying, I'm really going to write a book where you think nothing happens. Um, so that, so Emma can be especially challenging. Listen, Pride and Prejudice is this incredibly delightful book. It's a reason, there's a reason why it's her most famous book, why it's the one that keeps getting filmed uh, more than any of the others. It's perfectly constructed. The language is incredibly witty. It's, it's a, it's a terrific love. I mean, it sort of gives you that romance story that you want, but it gives it to you in an intelligent way that's, oh, that also challenges you. So you can't do better than start with Pride and Prejudice, I would say. And what insights do you think a, a guy should be on the lookout for while he's reading Pride and Prejudice? Well, I mean, Pride and Prejudice is really about um, uh, the difference between what you think you know and what is actually true. I mean, what it's really about is... so. That heroine, uh, she's not exactly like Emma, Elizabeth Bennett. She's a lot more likable than Emma, but she's, she's very smart. She's very sharp. 
And as a result, she kind of overvalues her own perceptions, you know. Um, She really thinks she can read people perfectly. And she makes a a lot of mistakes that cause her a lot of pain, ultimately. And, And that, to me, is what the book is really about. And it's really, I mean, yes, there's this, you know, marriage at the end. But I, I mean, I think even more than Love and Marriage, Austin's books in general and Pride and Prejudice in particular are about growing up and and not just when you're 20. I mean, they're about things that apply throughout youth and, and, and even in, in well into adulthood. And I think one of the fundamental lessons that you need to learn in order to really grow up is how fallible you are, how fallible your perceptions and your feelings are. I'll tell you, there's something that I think Pride and Prejudice teaches that actually women I've talked to have a lot of trouble when I articulate this. But I think it applies to men, too, because there's this feeling I think feminism has had a lot to do with promoting this this idea that our feelings are always valid. Their their, uh, feelings are automatically valid. It can never be challenged. They have this kind of metaphysical status. And Austin says, you know, that's bullshit. Um, Our feelings are always feelings about things about situations and if we misjudge the situation if we get it wrong then our feelings are wrong and we need to acknowledge that and i think that that's um that's been a hugely valuable lesson for me in the context of relationships because it enables me to it's enabled me to let go of uh, anger of resentment of hurt feelings you know um so yeah i i think yeah Pride and Prejudice. I love, I love that. Well, yeah. Bill, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? I have a website, BillDerezowitz.com, and I have you know information about my books and links to some of my articles, and that's that would be a good place to start. Fantastic. Well, Bill Derezowitz, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was William DeRezowitz. He's the author of the book, Excellent Sheep, Jane Austen Education, and Solitude and Leadership. All those available on Amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at BillDeRezowitz.com. And also check out our show notes at aom.is slash sheep for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. As always, we appreciate your reviews on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. Thank you so much for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently 
acapella.edu.